<laughs> go ahead and uh, invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. We'll be looking at all of chapter 2 today. Um, as, you're st- uh, as you're turning there, John 2, uh, this begins a new section in the gospel. We've been looking at the prologue up to this point. And John chapter 2 starts a new section in his gospel, the public ministry of Jesus, which begins in chapter 2 and will take us all the way to the end of chapter 12, the climax of his mission. Now, these 11 chapters, uh, we've said it before, they're collectively known as the book of signs. There's a lot of things that Jesus does in the, Gospels, uh, in the Gospel of John, but there are seven major signs, all of which reveal aspects of Jesus' glory and person as the Son of God. Now, the first main section in this book of signs uh, takes place between John chapter 2 and John chapter 4. This is what commentators usually call the Cana cycle because it begins and ends with mentions of Jesus doing things in the town of Cana. But I really like what Don Carson says. He points this out. He says in this first section, the connection goes well beyond uh, that Cana connection. He says there's this thematic wholeness that we'll see take place in verses uh, in chapters 2 through 4. He says in these three chapters, John organizes it in such a way to convey what the Apostle Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, The old has gone, behold, the new has come. Okay, so in these three chapters, we see these four major stories, and each of them, Jesus is doing away with the old things and bringing something new. In chapter 4, there's a whole new way to worship, which we see with the woman at the well. In John chapter 3, there's this thing called new birth, and he talks about what that means. At the end of our passage in chapter 2, we see that Jesus has become the new temple, and we'll see what that means. And we also see at the very beginning the new wine of the new kingdom. Now, in each of these stories, John is posing the question, what does this mean about Jesus? With all these new things he's doing, what does it say about Jesus? And will we respond accordingly? All right, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and read uh, John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and it manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. Now those three words, side note, Passover, temple, and Jerusalem, those three things were at the very heart 
of the Jewish religion and the Jewish identity. Jesus is going to the heart of the Jewish people. Okay, so verse 13 again. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, this is Psalm 69 verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, well, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now we're going to be talking about these last two, three verses uh, in two weeks when we look at John 3. But I'll go ahead and read them to us now because it serves as a bridge. John writes, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Brothers, this is the word of God. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for my dear brothers in this room. And I'm so grateful that you give us this passage this morning because like the song that we just sang, it does point us to the great feast that awaits us. And Lord, we pray that you would use this passage by your spirit to cultivate that hope in our hearts, that great wedding feast that's ahead where we are with you forever and ever. Let that be the great joy of our heart, the great hope for us to both today and tomorrow and the next day. Work in us, O oh Lord. Speak to us, for your servants listen. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It matters uh, what we believe. What we believe matters. What we believe uh, basically informs how we live. Whatever we believe about the future dictates how we live in the present. That's just how it works. So for example, if, you know, if, we, if we were believing that we're about to go into some sort of economic recession, most of us might withhold investing in our retirements or other stocks until the economy gets a little bit better. If you think this is the year for your team to make it to Atlanta, right, you might buy tickets now on the cheap side. Ole Miss fans have never had to worry about that. You know, I've never had to worry about that. But you might be doing that if you're a UT fan or a Georgia fan. Um, a little bit more serious, if, if you have no hope for the future, you will live hopelessly right now. That's just the way it works. What we believe matters. For the Apostle John, just as important about what we believe is why we believe it. You know, we, there's some people that believe a lot of dumb things. Like if I, as an Ole Miss fan, if I believed that Ole Miss was actually going to Atlanta this year, I would buy tickets right now. But that's dumb because <laughs> Ole Miss never goes to Atlanta. I mean, I never have to worry about it. What we believe matters and why we believe it matters just as much. Okay, so what we see happening in John's gospel, he is giving us a detailed analysis of Jesus's life. He's providing for us evidence to read. 
So he's urgent. He's desperate for us to believe that Jesus has this unique trustworthiness and authority as the incarnate Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one that is doing things. He's making things new, and he wants us to believe that. But he also provides us evidence of why we should believe that. Our faith has both an objective and a subjective side to it. But the subjective realities of our faith are based off objective historical things. And he's providing us these pieces of evidence so that we might believe the good news. So he's already been doing this. In, in chapter 1, he provides us four witnesses, all, all of whom provide us um, bold and convincing endorsements of who Jesus is. It began with John the Baptist. We have John Baptist, his testimony of who Jesus is. Then after that, we hear the testimony of Andrew, Peter's brother, and then Philip, and then Nathaniel. Each of those guys say something very bold and very convincing, endorsing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Now, when we get into chapter 2, John switches tactics a little bit. He uses Jesus' own example and Jesus' own testimony as proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the one in whom we must believe. Okay? Now, by doing this, we see two things. One, we see that Jesus is the master of the feast in verses 1 through 11. Then in verses 12 through 25, we see that Jesus is the focus of worship. And in both these stories, Jesus, or John rather, is asking us, do you believe the evidence that I'm putting forth? I'm putting forth evidence. Do you believe this evidence? And therefore, will you respond accordingly? Because what we believe matters. Okay, so let's look at that first one. Jesus is the master of the feast. We see this in verses 1 through 11. Now, I find this whole Cana story is pretty awesome. And actually, quite frankly, a little disarming, right? That Jesus' first act of public ministry is going to a party. And the first miraculous thing that he does is turn water into wine. I mean, that's a little shocking. I'm a Presbyterian. I have no qualms with wine. But I even think this is a little shocking. I mean, this is the Messiah we're talking about. What in the world does a wedding and wine have anything to do with his liberation of God's people? You know what? I bet you the original disciples felt that way too because they were just recently called by Jesus. In fact, have y'all seen uh, the show The Chosen? I like, there's some things I don't like about that show, but for the most part, I like that show. And there's actually an episode that depicts that. Jesus just calls his disciples, and all of them, but especially Peter, is very confused as to why Jesus is going to Cana. I mean, he, they just found out that he is the Messiah. He's the one they've been, they've been longing for. And Peter's like, why in the world are we going to this wedding? Let's get this Messiah thing. Let's get the show on the road. What in the world does this have to do with anything? But what John shows us here, this wedding in Cana has everything to do with what Jesus is doing in the world. What he has done and what he is doing. Now, in order to show this, I want us to break up these first 11 verses in four subsections, okay? Four W's. First off, a wedding. Why is this significant? Why is this important? Because it is. Secondly, the woman. <laughs> Jesus refers to his mom as the woman, which is very strange, but that actually, that actually informs us how we're supposed to relate to Jesus, and that's very important. We'll see that in a second, too. Thirdly, the new wine of the new kingdom. What does that indicate? Then lastly, absolute wonder. Why were the disciples in verse 11 overwhelmed with wonder? And John is saying, why should we be overwhelmed with wonder too? 
All right, so four little subsections. First off, the wedding. If you look at verses 1 and 2, we see that a wedding takes place on the North Sea of Galilee in this little town called Cana. Mary was invited, as was Jesus and his disciples. Scholars seem to think that uh, whoever the groom was was probably related to Jesus or at least a close friend of the family. Okay, so they're at a wedding in Cana. A little bit of context about weddings back then. Weddings were the biggest deal ever. I mean, it was, it was significant for the Jewish person in the first century. Now, I know here in East Memphis, we love our weddings. We love the pomp and the fanfare. We love to have good, fun parties. That's, I love weddings, right? But it does not hold a candle to what the Jews were doing in the first century. For example, history shows us that the wedding celebration lasted an entire week. Okay, it was a week-long party, all of which, by the way, was paid for by the groom or the groom's parents. Okay, talk about a bill, a week-long party. Now, beyond that, this was the highest point of any person's life back then, especially for poor people, because they got to dress like and live like royalty for an entire week. It was just mass celebration, mass joy. The wine flowed freely for everybody except for the groom and his parents. But it was a great time for every person that went. So when Jesus came, okay, when Jesus went to this wedding, well, first off, he was affirming the institution of marriage, which I think is important in this day and age. After all, he's the one who invented it, right? But in his incarnation, we also see him entering into the story of humanity. You know, Jesus is for the joy of his people. He went to a party. That's significant, I think. But by showing up at Cana, Jesus is showing us something very significant theologically. Now, what is he showing us? I think it's very interesting that Jesus begins his ministry by going to a wedding, a love story, participating in this love story, because this little passage, John 2, this love story, is smack dab in the middle of a greater love story. I've said this a couple of times. I know Todd has too. You know that the Bible is one giant story in of itself, 66 books, but it's one giant story. And in this giant story, there are bookends, Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 20 through 22. Those are bookends. They serve as an inclusio, which tells the reader that there's this major theme that's spread across the pages of Scripture. Okay, so let's think about this inclusio, this bookend. In Genesis 1 and 3, what do we got? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that Jesus, through whom and for whom and by whom, created all things. What happens in Genesis 2? There's a wedding between our first parents, Adam and Eve. Then what happens in Genesis 3? That evil serpent comes and leads our first parents into sin and all hell breaks loose. And it's a tragic story at the end of the love story. But then you get to the end of the Bible, the end of the giant story into Revelation. What happens in Revelation chapter 20? It's the final destruction of that serpent. All evil is thrown in the lake of fire. It's destroyed forever. What happens in Genesis chapter 21? A greater wedding. A greater wedding between the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. And then what happens in Genesis chapter 22? The creation of the new heavens and the new earth, where true righteousness and true joy reign forever and ever. And every single page in between those two bookends is a story of how God in Jesus Christ makes you and me his bride. That's the grand story of the Bible. Okay, now we're going to get to that in just a moment. But what we're to understand is that this little story in John is not an aberration. It's not an accident. It isn't a know-nothing story. But this little wedding feast, this miracle that takes place, is a summarization of the entire ministry of Jesus as the greater bridegroom of what he has done and is doing 
in the world. It's very significant, this story. Okay, so let's go back to present day. There is a wedding. Everything's going according to plan until it doesn't, right? What happens? They ran out of wine. Now, we might think, well, that seems like no big deal. I mean, after all, they are having a week-long party. Surely at some point, they're going to run out of wine. It was a very big deal back then to run out of wine. Remember, it was an honor-shame society. So for the groom and his parents to run out of the ultimate party favor was highly embarrassing. But beyond that, it actually opened them up to legal troubles. I mean, seriously. By running out of wine, the attendees could actually sue the groom for ruining their good time. I mean, we see that in history. Can you imagine you're throwing a, I don't know, a rehearsal dinner for your son and you run out of booze and everybody there could sue you for it? I mean, talk about the pressure, right? So here you go. You have a wedding, right? And there is a deeper theological meaning of what's happening. God is showing us something, all right? It's pointing us to, to the greater wedding, to the greater bridegroom. We'll get to that in just a moment. But there is an issue. They run out of wine. Now, before we see how Jesus addresses that, secondly, we got to see how Jesus interacts with his mother because it's highly important of how we are called to relate to Jesus, which is really John's main point. How are we going to respond to Jesus? So if you look at verse 3, Mary, again, who is probably a good friend of the mother of the groom, she's helping with this party, it seems. She alerts Jesus to the problem. She says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Jesus responds somewhat harshly, it seems. He says, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? I mean, even as an adult, if you called your mom woman, I mean, I wouldn't be here with you today if, if I ever said that, right? But that's strange that Jesus would respond to his mom, call her that. But what is equally as strange is how Mary responds to Jesus. She's not mad at all. She simply says to the servants, do what he says. Now, what's going on? Is Jesus being, is he being rude to Mary? Is he being mean to his mother? Of course not. We know that. Jesus is the perfect son. He's the perfect son of God. That phrase woman, by the way, is the same phrase that he uses in John chapter 19 when he's on the cross. He's making final arrangements for Mary when he says, woman, this is now your son, referring to John. So, you know, Jesus knows that he's about to die. He knows he's not about to be with his mother anymore. And so he's making arrangements that his mother would be cared for. So that he's not being rude. However, he is intentionally distancing himself from Mary. Now, why would he do that? Why would he distance himself from his mother? I think this is why. Up until this point, Mary had relied upon Jesus for most things. Right now, Joseph is nowhere to be found. Joseph has probably been uh, dead for, for several years. Jesus is in his late 20s, or early 30s. And just like any widow, she relied upon her kids. And why would she not rely upon Jesus? I mean, she knew who Jesus was, at least in part. Of course she was going to rely upon Jesus. And Jesus was primarily the primary breadwinner, too, for the family, right? Because he was a carpenter or a stonemason, either way. I mean, he was probably her only source of income. Of course, Mary relied upon Jesus. Up until this point in Jesus' life, his primary earthly relationship was as Mary's son. So why does, why does Jesus respond to his sweet mom this way? I think this is what Jesus is saying. Mom or, or woman, the time has begun. 
My mission has begun. The reason I became man has started. My time has not yet come, and that's another phrase for his work on the cross, when his glory will be revealed in all of its brightness. Mom, that hasn't come yet. Therefore, I will not be controlled by any human, even you, Mom. From this point forward, my only business is the business of my Father in heaven. In other words, I think this is what Jesus is saying in this response. He is saying, he's saying, Mary, you have to stop viewing me just as your son. And you have to start viewing me as your Savior. Which I'm sure was very strange for her. And I'm sure it was strange for Jesus too. I mean, that, that's just a, that's, but that's a conversation that needed to be had. But again, notice how Mary responds She doesn't respond angrily or confused. She responds with faith. I love what Carson says. Carson says, Mary approaches Jesus as a mother and is reproached. She then responds as a believer with great faith. She says, do whatever he says. And then her faith is rewarded. So I think it's very interesting. In these three verses, we see how we ought to respond to Jesus, brothers. If if Mary, the mother of Jesus, did not have an inside track with Jesus, we certainly don't have an inside track. We have to see Jesus, who he really is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is Lord. It's all about his will and not ours. So we must respond to him in that way. That's what John really wants us to see. But we also see, too, that we can bring Jesus anything that is on our hearts. Anything no matter how trivial we're afraid it might be, as long as we do it in faith, just like Mary. So when Mary says to the servants, do whatever he says, this is essentially what Mary is saying. Jesus, this is what I'm concerned about and worried about, and I'm just going to give it to you. However you want to deal with it, in whatever time and way that you seem fit, I trust you. And why does she trust him? Because she knows that he is the Son of God that he is the Lord. Of course she can trust him with it. And brothers, we can trust Jesus with everything too. That's really what John wants us to see. He wants us to see the evidence that Jesus is the trustworthy and authoritative son of God. We can trust him with everything. So we got to respond to him that way. So first off, we we see the wedding, then we see the woman. Thirdly, we see the new wine of the new kingdom. Now, as it turns out, It was Jesus' will to do something about the wine, but not because Mary had some sort of motherly influence over him. It's just clear that it's always been the Father's plan for Jesus to slowly but surely reveal his own glory, starting in Cana, because again, this whole Cana event points to a greater wedding, points to a greater bridegroom. It points to the greater master of the feast. Back then, the bridegroom was the master of the feast. He is the one who's throwing the party. But this Cana party is, throw, is, is pointing to the greater bridegroom. It's pointing to the greater master of the feast, okay? So here's the miracle. Jesus says to the servants, go get those six stone jars of water. Those were for the rites of purification. Basically, it was uh, about being, becoming ceremonially clean. It was kind of like a religious rite, essentially. So Jesus says, go ahead and get those six jars and fill them to the brim, which is exactly what they did. Jesus turns it to wine, which means there was about 180 gallons of divine wine, right? More wine than anybody at that party needed. And beyond that, it was the most delicious wine you've ever tasted. And we see that with the master of ceremonies. The master of ceremonies was essentially a DJ the groom hired to throw this party. So the master of ceremony, he, he, he drinks the wine. 
and he is, his mind is blown by how good this stuff is, he stops the party cold, and he makes a big scene. And he goes, everybody, let me tell you something. Everybody here knows that the, when we're at parties like this, the, the host, they'd serve the good stuff first, right, when all of our taste buds are still working. But after, after everybody has tied a few on, you know, not that they've gotten drunk, but there comes a point where people quit caring about the taste of the wine. When it gets to that point, people start serving the watered-down stuff, like the yellowtail or the boxed wine. I mean, you know, no one cares about it halfway into the party. But these people have saved the best stuff for last. And it's more than we could ever possibly imagine. This is the best wine. They have blessed us immensely. That's what the guy was saying. I mean, th this was a huge blessing. Now, why was it a blessing? Back then, we have to get in the mindset of, the, of, of early Judaism. The Jews believed, and we see this in Psalm 104, Isaiah 55, and elsewhere. Wine was symbolic of joy. So if you're going to have a party, if you're going to have a feast or a banquet, if there was no wine, there was no joy. And so when Mary goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they have no wine, essentially what she is saying is that the guests are left without joy. Now that was the observable problem that for John signified an inward reality. Okay, because here's the inward reality. The universal experience of humanity apart from Christ is that there comes a time when your joy runs out. That's just intrinsic with earthly joys. There's nothing wrong with, with earthly joys, but, but they fade. They, they do not last. And that catches up to every single person. Sometimes it catches up to us when we're young, but, but eventually when we're old, all of us will come to realize that there is no true joy found in this world. In the things that I enjoy, there's really no lasting joy. I, for example, am a huge Cubs fan. I love baseball, but after watching Acuna just absolutely destroy the Cubs, I, I could care less about baseball. I'm, I'm, I'm done with baseball until next year. Um, steak and lobster is delicious, but for 365 days of the year, we're going to get tired of all the red meat. We're going to get bored with it. I mean, that's just, that's just the reality of the joys of this world. Apart from Christ, there is no lasting joy joy. And Jesus is actually showing that with religion. Because but, but the, very, the very fact that he's taking these six jars for ritual cleansing, all right, he is showing that the old school, the ritual rites, the old religion, it's lost its flavor. It's died. It's dried up. It no longer provides joy. But here's the good news. This is the good news of the sign. Jesus has arrived. And the old has gone. Behold, the new has come. He is bringing new joy. He's bringing new life. He's bringing real cleansing, abundant joy. And he is the host. And he provides joy abundantly. So the disciples, three years after the fact, after Jesus' hour had come, and this is verse 11, this is the wonder. This is why they were just amazed. Okay, because they understood what was happening. The word sign in verse 11 is extremely, extremely important. Whenever there was a miracle taking place in the other Gospels, they would just call it a miracle, right, because it was a demonstration of Jesus' power showing that the kingdom of God was breaking in. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's an apt description. But John doesn't use the word miracle. He uses the word sign to describe those same things, all right, because he understood that these miracles point beyond themselves to show something of significance. 
And what is the significance? In each and every one of these signs, it is the glory of Jesus. There's something important about his person. And so when the disciples saw this, they, they understood it and they believed. What is it about Jesus that they saw? It's the same thing that John wants us to see. First off, they saw that, well, he is creator. He has power over, over all the substances of the universe. Turning water into wine is no big deal to Jesus because he's in the inventor of water and wine. He's creator. But that was just kind of the surface. They also understood, too, that Jesus, oh my goodness, he really is the Messiah. And the long-awaited time of, the, of that new messianic age, which we've been longing for, that has arrived in the person of Jesus. Because like the prophets of old in Joel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, a sign of the new kingdom, a sign of the messianic age would be that wine would flow freely for the joy of God's people. That's throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. And so they understood that in Jesus, they didn't understand it completely at the time, but they understood that the old things were passing away and the new things were coming and they were filled with joy. Three years after the fact, after Jesus' hour had come and they finally understood everything, they looked back and remembered that Jesus was not just some ordinary attendant to this wedding in Cana three years ago, but really that he was the eschatological bridegroom. The one who, the true master of the feast who has come to gather up his bride, you and me, to give us real lasting joy. Lasting joy at the cost of his own life. Because remember, it was the bridegroom's job to pay for all of it. And Christ does. With his own life, he makes us pure and he clothes us with the wedding garments of his own righteousness. And he's preparing us for this wedding feast in Zion where our joy will know no end. And so in this passage, in this first part, John is saying, who is Jesus? I'll tell you who Jesus is, brothers. He is the Lord of glory. He is the true bridegroom. He is the master of the feast who has come to give you and me joy. The new wine of the new kingdom is divine joy. Joy that only he can give. And so we really have to ask ourselves the question, if we are joyless, I'm not talking about superficial happiness. No one's happy all the time. But if we are joyless, is it because we're looking for joy in all of the wrong places? John says the joy that you're after can only be found in Christ. I was looking, um, I was researching this, and there was an old, um, who's the old talk show host, Johnny, um, Johnny who? Johnny Carson. I can't believe I forgot Johnny. I'm so sorry. Anyway, so he was interviewing an eight-year-old boy. And he was interviewing an eight-year-old boy um, because the kid somehow saved two of his friends from like a mine shaft accident in West Virginia. And so anyway, he's interviewing the boy and it became clear to the audience and to Johnny that this kid was a Christian. And so Johnny just kept on asking him questions, asked him if he attended Sunday school. And the little boy said, oh yes, I definitely go to Sunday school. And Johnny said, oh, that's great. So what have you been learning in Sunday school? And he goes, well, last week, in fact, I learned that Jesus goes to parties and he turns water into wine. And the whole, the whole crowd just erupted in laughter because, oh, <laughs> Jesus is the one that brings wine. That's what he remembers. And so, but Johnny, you know, he kept the straight face and, you know, that's, that's wild and crazy stuff. Tell, tell, tell us, what did you learn about that? And the kid had no idea about the deeper meaning, what we just talked about. So he just blurted out, well, I guess if you're going to have a party, you better be inviting Jesus, <laughs> right? Because he, he brings the wine. But how much truth did that boy speak? 
Because Jesus really does bring the new wine of the new kingdom. He alone brings joy. And that's John's point. That's what John wants us to see. Brothers, if you want joy, it can only be found in Jesus. And when you go to Jesus, you will receive a joy that will never, ever end. It will keep getting better and better and better until we come into the fullness thereof in the new time and the new heavens and the new earth when we are feasting with him. He is the master of the feast. Now, secondly, a little bit more quickly, we see that Jesus is also the focus of worship. We see this in verses 12 through 25. I love how John puts these two stories together, right? Because it's a little bit jarring, and it's, it's jarring on purpose. I mean, he brings joy to Cana, but he brings anger to Jerusalem. Kind of wigs me out a little bit just thinking about it, because it's supposed to do that. I like how Ligon Duncan helps me to think about it. He says, way too often, we are tempted to make Jesus one-dimensional, which is dangerous. We tend to think of him only as gentle and the friend of sinners, which, of course, is very much true. But he is also zealous for the honor of God, and he demands our reverence. Jesus is the Lamb, but he is also the Lion of Judah, and we must receive him and approach him as both. And I think that's what we see in John chapter 2. Jesus is truly the master of the feast. He brings untold joy for those who come to him. But he's also the focus of worship. He demands our reverence. He demands our loyalty and allegiance. So after Cana, the scene shifts. Jesus and his disciples, they head to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Okay, so essentially he and his brothers are going to church. Right? The greatest church service in that time period, okay? They're about to go celebrate. Isn't that cool? The true Paschal Lamb is about to celebrate Passover with people who don't know him as such yet. I think that's fascinating. But anyway, they're going to worship. And while they're at worship, while they're in church, we see two things. We see the passion or the zeal of Jesus. And secondly, we see the promise, the unbelievable promise that Jesus makes. So first off, the passion of Jesus. It is clear in verses 13 through 17, it's clear that Jesus is angry. Now, sometimes that puts people off. Jesus is angry? I thought, he's, I thought God is love. He's the friend of sinners. How could he possibly be mad at me and my sin? He's loving, right? We've heard that. The people who think that, I don't think I've ever truly been in love before, right? Because say, for example, I mean, you could be declaring your undying love for your spouse till the cows come home. But if you're just, you know, say, for example, she gets mugged in the parking lot and you just sit back and don't even lift a finger, you probably don't love her that much. If you did love her, you would chase down the mugger and beat the snot out of him. And you would keep beating the snot out of him until the police came. Right? Sometimes anger reveals true, genuine love. That's what we see happen here. Jesus didn't lose control. He didn't lose his temper. He doesn't have unrighteous anger. But out of his love for his Father and his love for his people, he gets angry. And why is he getting angry? I mean, bottom line is, these religious leaders desecrated the temple. They desecrated worship, and they kept other people from knowing and worshiping God. Now, the thing with the temple, God's presence is not confined to the temple. However, he did make it so where the temple and tabernacle before it would be the meeting place between heaven and earth. During that time frame, now Jesus changes this, and we'll get to that in John chapter 4. But that's what the temple was. It was the meeting place between heaven and earth. That's the place where people would go to pray and make their sacrifice, where they would go to worship. And for Jesus, that was the most important thing, the devotion of one's heart 
worshiping God. And for God's people, that's the most important thing. Our highest duty, our highest honor, (laughs) our greatest privilege is to worship God. Why? Because He alone is worthy of it. The shorter catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose for existence? It's to know God, to enjoy Him, and to glorify Him forever. Right? But these yahoos made a circus of it. People who should have known better. Now, how do they do this? What did they do? Well, way back then, when you're making a pilgrimage to the temple to celebrate Passover, say, for example, you were leaving Cana and you had to travel to Jerusalem, which was a long trek. Well, when you get to Jerusalem, you have to make a sacrifice. And so this is for people's convenience. Rather than taking your own animals from back and home, they might have been pure then, but they're going to get spotted on the way there. So to to make it convenient for worshipers, they would sell sacrifices near the temple so it could make a good sacrifice, which was a good thing. There's also money changers there too. And they would exchange the Roman currency that most people had under Roman rule They would make that exchange so they would get the proper money that they needed to make their temple tax, right? So these are things that people needed. It was supposed to make their worship accessible. What is the issue then? The issue was not, at least in this temple cleansing, like it was in the second temple cleansing near the end of Jesus' life, near the end of his earthly ministry that we see in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus was angry that the temple workers were fleecing the visitors. I mean, they were robbing them blind. But that's not what was happening here, it doesn't seem. Why was Jesus upset here? He was upset because the temple workers set up shop smack dab in the middle of the temple courts. Historically, the temple courts is the courts of the Gentiles. Now, why is that significant? Well, what was Israel's purpose in the Old Testament? They were to be a light to the nations. They were to make it accessible to where people could come and know Yahweh and worship Yahweh. And they failed in that miserably. And this is evidence of it. Right, Because here are these God-fearers, these Gentiles, who somehow, someway, have come to believe in Yahweh, and they cannot wait to get to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. But once they get in their designated area, what do they see? They see a whole bunch of Pharisees who don't give a rip whether if they worship God or not, because all they care about is getting their money. So here's the deal. They were distorting and perverting worship. And they were also diminishing the glory of God. Because say that you're a Gentile, right? Say that you're a God-fearer. You've never been to Jerusalem. And you've heard all these things about Yahweh. He's the true God. And you get there to worship Him. And what do you see? You see this? What are you going to think? You're going to think you got had. You're going to think, oh my goodness, these are, these are tele-evangelists. I got, I got snowed over. This isn't the real deal. These people just invented this Yahweh to get my money. And so Jesus, he forms a whip and he drives them out. And he flips the temples of, theirs, of their idols. Now this goes well beyond moral rage. Okay, it is very much that. But it goes beyond that. This is a sign of end time fulfillment, which we'll get to in just a moment. But friends, what do we learn from this? What we learn is that Jesus does not mess around with sin. He loves us, but he doesn't mess around with our sin. And he will go to the heart of every single person to what they hold most dear. And he is not afraid to flip the tables of our idols. And I'm so thankful he's not. Because he wants our hearts. He wants our worship. That's his zeal. He is zeal for his Father's worship. He is zeal for our hearts. He's passionate about it. 
He revealed to his disciples that day and he reveals to us today that true faith means turning away from idol worship to worshiping him. It requires nothing less than putting Jesus on the throne of our hearts. That's his passion. We can't mess around with him. He is the lion of Judah. He wants us. He wants our allegiance. Now, secondly, and very quickly, it's clear that the religious leaders, they were a little shocked by this. They weren't expecting it. But um, in verses 18 through 25, it is also clear they knew that Jesus was significant. Because if they thought that Jesus was just a, a crazy guy creating a disturbance, they would have not hesitated to throw him in jail. But they didn't do that. They demanded a sign which kind of reveals their hand a little bit, right? Because they were not concerned whether or not if Jesus was justified in doing this. They just want to know what kind of authority he had. There was no self-examination. There was a hardness of heart that was visible. And we know that because they completely missed the sign of Jesus' authority that he just did. The sign that the disciples picked up on, those messianic psalms of King David in chapter 69, verse 9, where he says, I have zeal for my father's house as well as the allusion to Malachi 3.1, where it says the Messiah will denounce impure worship in the temple. They missed that. So Jesus says, okay, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a doozy. Go ahead and rip down this temple y'all love so much, and I'll raise it up in three days. He, he said that because he knows no sign was going to help these people. They had hard hearts. But here's the interesting thing. And this back and forth that Jesus has with these religious workers is an embedded promise, an amazing promise an amazing promise, a promise that John wants us to hold on to. What's that promise? It's a promise that these disciples understood and believed three years later when they were in the upper room and they were hopeless. They had no hope for the future. They were afraid and scared because their friend, who they believed to be the Messiah, had died. But in the twinkling of an eye, they were filled with indescribable joy because they saw that Jesus was alive. And in that moment, they understood what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about his resurrection. And in that moment, they understood the greater picture that Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the meeting place between heaven and earth. It's Jesus that the fullness of the glory of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the place of sacrifice because he is the ultimate sacrifice. But the ultimate sign that they received, that they could believe everything that Jesus ever said about himself, and they could believe the promises that he gave them and that he gives us, and that he is worthy of our devotion, and he's worthy of our worship, and he's absolute trustworthy, is the fact they tore down his body, but he rose from the dead three days later. John says it matters what we believe and why we believe it. And he says Jesus is the Messiah. And this is why you can believe it, because he's still alive. And John says, hold on to that. He is desperate, brothers, for us to truly believe that each and every day. And if we do believe it, to keep on believing it, because it will give you joy that is not found in this world. Just think about John. Years from, or about the time that he wrote this. He was an old man, exiled. Everybody he loved dearly in the world was dead and martyred. He knew what it meant to be hopeless, and therefore he knew the urgency and the importance of hanging on to this promise. And isn't it true each and every day we're discouraged and we feel hopeless because of whatever? Hopelessness and despair, those are the main weapons the enemy throws at us each and every day. And John says, hold on to this promise. You have reason to believe it because he rose from the dead. Really quickly, John Bunyan, 
He understood that struggle too. And in his Pilgrim's Progress, I just love this. I'm, I'm not sure what time it is. If you need to go, you can, but I love this story. In Pilgrim's Progress, he, 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 um, he writes about this. He said that Christian and his traveling companion, Hopeful, were one day captured by the giant despair. They are taken to the doubting castle where they are thrown into the dungeon. Christian and his companion are beaten mercilessly by despair. They're even shown the bones of other pilgrims who gave up. But Christian and his companion refused to give up. And one night Christian remembered the way to escape the giant's clutches. He was able to unlock the door and able to run free into joy and freedom. These pilgrims escaped not by a show of force, not by their own courage or some innate determination, but by a key called promise. Brothers, when you are overwhelmed with guilt, despair, fear, worry, what is the key of promise? John tells us in this whole gospel, it's the testimony of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Because Jesus is risen, we can believe every single thing that the Bible says about this Christ, that his promises are yes and amen. And because Jesus is risen from the dead, every single one of us in him will one day rise too. And on that great day to come, brothers, he will gather his bride and usher us into the greatest wedding celebration you've ever been to. And there will be joy unending. And what a day it will be. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you. Uh, we're so grateful for the gift of faith. We believe the gospel. Please help our disbelief. Build us in more and more faith, Father, so that we might live in the joy that you have for us each and every day. For your glory and our good, it's in Christ we pray. Amen.